Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. And this is the word of the Lord. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the author or the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over all, over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is precious. It is life-giving. It is eternal. Open up the scriptures to us this morning, and may your Holy Spirit teach and instruct our hearts in your ways. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we continue with our study in the book of Hebrews, one thing that we are going to see constantly throughout the book is uh, the comparing and contrasting of Jesus Christ with the people, the places, the rituals, and so on of the Old Testament. Remember this book, again, again, this book was originally given to Christians who, being faced with severe persecution, were being tempted to abandon Christ and return to Judaism, the, the religion of the Old Covenant, of the Old Testament. These were new converts to Christianity from Judaism. So what the author of Hebrews begins to do is to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament pointed towards. Uh, and so for them to abandon Christ and go back to Judaism, it would be, as I, I think I said before, it'd be like trading in a plate full of your favorite food for a picture of it, uh, in a picture of it on a menu. It, 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 to go back to Judaism would be to trade the substance the real deal, the meat and potatoes for types and shadows. This morning, we really begin to see the author of Hebrews laying out his arguments for the supremacy of Jesus by comparing and contrasting them to the chief figure of the Old Testament, Moses. Now, I think for us today, it's, it's a little difficult for us to understand just how important Moses was to the Jews. Moses is sort of the top of the pyramid no one could really touch him in Judaism. Uh, think about this. Apart from Adam in the Garden of Eden before the fall, no man in the Old Testament had a closer communion and fellowship with God than Moses. We could see that as Moses would go up the mountain to actually talk with God. Moses was the one through whom God gave the law. Moses uh, was the chief among all the Old Testament prophets. Now remember, what prophets did in the Old Testament was they would bring God's word from God to the people. Uh, but Moses was also the chief priest of the Old Testament. Now, a priest was someone who went to God on behalf 
of the people. So Moses in his prophetic role would go to the people on behalf of God and his priestly role, he would go to God on behalf of the people. We could see this after the incident of the golden calf, right? God expresses a desire to wipe out the Israelites. What does Moses do? He goes to God on behalf of the people and intercedes for them. Uh, so Moses is this figure, both of the, the embodiment of the prophetic office of the Old Testament and the priestly office of the Old Testament. It was also Moses through whom the Lord gave the command to build the tabernacle, the tent where the people of of, of Israel could gather and meet with God, the tent of meeting, the central location of Israel's worship life. It was Moses who God used to write the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It was also through Moses that the Lord did the greatest act of redemption in the Old Testament, the deliverance of the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. It's hard to overstate the importance of the Exodus event to the Jewish people. The Israels, the, the Israelites being delivered from Egypt was to them very much so what Easter is to us. If you asked us today, how do you know that your God is a God who saves? We would say because Jesus Christ came, died and paid for all of our sins, and rose again from the dead. If you asked an Israelite during the Old Testament times, how do you know your God is a God who saves? They would say, because he is the Lord who brought us out of the land of bondage and slavery in Egypt. And Moses was the one through whom the Lord did that mighty work of redemption. So Moses is a big deal to these early Jewish Christians. Now up to this point, the author of Hebrews has done a few things that leads us uh, all to this, this point here in the beginning of chapter three. First, you remember he declared that Jesus is God's fuller or better revelation of himself to us. Then he declared that Jesus is better than the angels, that he is far superior, far superior even to those mysterious strangely wonderful heavenly beings that we call angels. Then he gave us all a warning not to drift away from Christ, a charge to us all to keep our anchor planted in the soil of the gospel. And building upon that warning, then he went on to give us a great hope for those who do cling to Christ, who aren't uprooted, who keep their anchor planted. God has a, a wonderful future for us all as we will live and reign with Jesus in the world to come. And then last week we heard the wonderful truth that in Jesus Christ, the God-man, the one who took onto himself the weakness of human flesh, we have a savior like us, one who can sympathize with us, one who is not ashamed to call us brother or sister if we cling to him in faith. And notice here, verse one of chapter three continues that theme. The author says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Consider Jesus. What does that mean? Well, for that original audience in the first century, it was a call for them 
people who were on the verge of forgetting who Jesus is and what he has done for them. It was a call for them to fix their eyes upon him. Consider, that word consider means to give careful thought, to meditate upon Jesus Christ. Ponder deeply who he is and what he has done for you. And why is this call to consider Jesus so important? Because, says the author, he is the, he is the apostle and high priest of our confession. The apostle and high priest. Now what does it mean to call Jesus an apostle? We normally think of apostles as the men who Jesus called and sent out. Well, the word apostle simply means one sent by God. And this is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is called an apostle. And see how this connects with Moses. Moses was sent by God. Moses was sent by God to Pharaoh. And through that sending, God, through Moses, brought a great deliverance for his people. Jesus, however, was sent by God to his people. And through Jesus, an even greater deliverance was achieved. The salvation of all God's people from their sin, from the devil, and even from death itself. This is why Jesus was sent by God. Jesus is called the apostle here for this reason. He is the one sent by God to deliver his people. But he's also called the high priest. Now, we already talked about what a priest did in the Old Testament. The priest went before God on behalf of the people. But the high priests, they were a little different. They had a special role. In the tabernacle or in the temple, it was the high priest who once a year went into that and went into what was known as the Holy of Holies, the innermost sanctuary of the temple, a place which was considered to be God's dwelling place on earth, a place where only the high priest and only once a year could go in to make a sacrifice on behalf of the people of Israel. This, brothers and sisters, was quite a dangerous task. To go into the very presence of the holy God himself, um, it's said that the people of Israel would tie a rope around the waist of the high priest uh, so that if he did not consecrate himself uh, properly, that is, if he did not purify himself properly through the various ceremonial washings of the Old Testament law, uh, if he did not do this, And because of this, he was struck dead by God, which did happen. The people could use the rope to pull the dead body out of the Holy of Holies. They dare not go into that inner sanctuary, even to retrieve the body of the high priest. But Jesus is called our high priest here. And it's drawing upon this Old Testament imagery. And how is Jesus our high priest through his offering up of himself as a once-for-all-time perfect sacrifice to make atonement, to cleanse his people from their sins. And this is why, brothers and sisters, through Jesus Christ, we now all have access to the Holy of Holies, access to the throne of God. This is why when Christ on the cross gave up his spirit, what does the gospel say? The temple curtain was torn in two. That that curtain was what separated the Holy of Holies from the outer sanctuaries. And it symbolized that through Jesus Christ, our high priest, we all 
not just the high priest once a year, but we all, through Jesus Christ, have access to the throne of God. And so when the author of Hebrews calls Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, what he is saying is Jesus is the one who came as sent by God the Father to deliver us from our sins by the once offering up of himself. And this is our confession. Our confession is not here in the book of Hebrews. It's not some abstract list of doctrines. In this verse, our confession is the gospel. So the call to consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, is ultimately a call to remember the gospel and do not turn away from it. Do not turn your back from Jesus on, uh, do not turn your back on Jesus Christ. And do you see what the author does here in verse two? He draws a likeness then to Jesus and Moses. He says, Moses was faithful in God's house. Jesus too was faithful in the mission for which he was sent by God to achieve. This is an important important point, brothers and sisters. Notice the author of Hebrews is not speaking of Jesus as being better than Moses in order to degrade Moses or to, in any sort of way, say that the Old Testament is not important for us today. The author actually honors Moses as faithful. And that's sort of, An amazing thought. Because when you read about Moses in the Old Testament, he does not always act faithfully, does he? In fact, it was Moses' unfaithfulness that kept him from entering into the promised land. And yet, because Moses was a man of faith, because Moses trusted in the promises of God, trusted in the coming Messiah, he was and is seen by God as a faithful messenger. And I think this is something wonderful about how God sees those who look to Christ in faith. He doesn't see our flaws. He doesn't see our unfaithfulness, our rebellion. He sees Christ in us. And he can say to us, because of Jesus Christ, he can say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Moses here, despite all his sins, despite his rebellion, is called faithful by the very word of God. That's a, an important point and a wonderful encouragement for us this morning. In the text, it's important to note that the author of Hebrews, again, is not doing away with the Old Testament. Instead, what he's ultimately going to do by comparing and contrasting Moses and Jesus, he's going to teach us how to truly understand the Old Testament. So just as Jesus was faithful to God, so too Moses was faithful as one sent by God. There's something similar the author of Hebrews is saying about Moses and Jesus. But there's also a significant difference between Moses and Jesus. So we see in verses three and four, when he writes, for Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. You know, the, the Bible describes God's people in many different ways. We are called God's family. We are called the body of Christ. We are called the church 
or the assembly. We are called the Israel of God. We are called a flock. We are called a holy city. We are called a bride. Many different phrases used to describe us. But here the author of Hebrews calls us the house. The house. And I think that's a wonderful picture. That we are the household of God. Because what do you do with a house? You live in it. You dwell in it. And you know that's one of the covenant promises that God has given his people throughout the whole of scripture. The promise that God would make his dwelling place among us. That's something we lost when we rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, God's dwelling place was with man. Adam walked with God in the cool of the day, in the garden. He had a close, intimate relationship with God that we have not had since the fall. And yet God's promise, even after banishing Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, God's promise continued to be throughout the Old and New Testament, his dwelling place would be among his people again. And here now, we are called the house of God. And why not? Because where is it that God, the Holy Spirit, dwells? It's in, it's, it's in and among us. It's in our hearts, in our souls, in our minds that the Holy Spirit dwells. And so it's perfectly fitting here that the author of Hebrews calls the people of God a house. But notice what it says about Jesus and Moses. Jesus is worthy of much more glory because Jesus, not Moses, is the builder of the house. I think we get the illustration that the author is using. The builder and the building are not the same thing. They are not on the same level, right? You know, we have this beautiful old church building here, for example. And just in my short time here as your pastor, I've met many people who have seen the, the church for the first time and have complimented the beauty and the simplicity and the uh, well-maintained nature of this building. Uh, but what would they say if they were actually able to meet the person who designed this building? They, you know, would they say, oh, yeah, okay, nice to meet you. Look at the grandness of this building. No, that's not what they would say. They would, they would praise the architect. They would praise the designer of the building. They would shower him with compliments. Because while the building may be beautiful, it is no greater than the person who created it. And here the author is, the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is the one who has established the house of God. He is the divine builder. Moses was simply a member of the house. An important member, no doubt. But still just a member of the house. And therefore, Moses cannot even come close to the glory of Jesus Christ. Verses 5 and 6 help us to understand this even more clearly. Moses, verse 5 tells us, was again faithful in God's house, but he was a servant. And as a servant, what did he do? He testified to the things that were to be spoken of later. This 
this statement, this is an amazing statement because what it means here is that Moses, even Moses, way back in the earliest pages of the Old Testament, testified to the things that were to be spoken of later. And what that means is that what Moses was doing was bearing testimony to Jesus Christ. 2,000 years or more before Christ would come and live among us, Moses was testifying about him. Now, did Moses know that? Did Moses know he was testifying about Christ when he wrote the first five books of the Bible? Probably not fully. He probably didn't understand quite fully what he was doing and what the Holy Spirit was doing through him. But I guarantee you, he knows it today. And I think this verse helps us to understand how you and I are to think about the entire Old Testament. We are to think and understand the Old Testament in light of Jesus Christ. All those stories in the Old Testament, whether they were written by Moses or the other prophets, they are all about Jesus. That's the main point. We so often can turn those stories into little moralistic lessons, right? David and Goliath is not about, is about being scared, not being scared, right? Jonah is about not running from God. You know, whatever it is, we, we so easily make those wonderful stories about us and about how we should live. And sometimes there are moral examples in those stories for us to follow. But brothers and sisters and friends, that is not what those stories are ultimately about. The whole of the Old Testament, from the writings of Moses to the writings of Samuel, Ezra, Solomon, King David, Jonah, Micah, whoever it is, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they are all about Jesus Christ. It's all about proclaiming the gospel. And this is what Moses did. He was a great servant of God, a faithful servant, yes, but he was only a servant. And as a faithful servant, he was pointing God's people towards the truth of the coming Messiah. Now, Jesus Christ, in contrast, he is not merely a servant. He is the Son he is the eternal son of God. And we know, right, that in any given house, if we could think back to a time where households would, would have servants like they did when this book was written, we know that the son had a much greater status than a servant. The son is the one who would inherit his father's riches. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that Christ is the greatest son, the eternal son of God, far better, far superior to any servant of any house. And then he goes on to say that we are members of this greatest son's house if we hold fast to the gospel of the son that's the point of Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Consider Christ, hold on to Christ. Do not elevate the servants of God's household over Christ. And I think we understand this passage. We understand it a bit why the author of Hebrews would need to write this passage to his original audience. We understand why they would have needed 
This reminder in the first century as, as Jewish converts to Christianity did not put Moses over Christ. But what about us today? What is this passage saying to us? Because I highly doubt that any of us are in danger of putting Moses above Christ. I highly doubt any of us are in danger of turning our backs on Christ and going back to Judaism. That's the hardest part of preaching sermons like this, I think. It's one thing to understand what a text means. And I could stand up here every week and explain to you what the text means in its original context. And we should strive to understand what the texts of the Bible mean. That's important. It's the word of God. But it's another thing to find the practical application of the text. It's another thing to know how this, as the eternal word of God, written to all of God's people throughout all the ages, applies to our lives today in the 21st century. And I think for this text this morning, the application comes from the reminder to consider Jesus. And it plays out in two ways. The first way it plays out is for those who may hear this sermon, but have not yet put their hope and trust in Christ. The call is clear. My friends, consider Jesus. Consider who he is as the one who has come. Come to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. Consider who he is as the one who not only died, but who has also risen over death so that you can have eternal life. Will you consider Jesus Christ? Will you put your hope and trust in him alone And make him Lord of your life. That's the call that is before you this morning. If you do that, if you consider Jesus and look to him in repentance of your sins and faith, that is trusting in who he is and what he has done in his life and death and resurrection, then you too can be a member of this glorious house that Jesus himself has built. And so that's the first application of this text. And I do pray that all of you here have put your hope, your trust in Christ. But if you have not, it's also my prayer that you would leave here today considering Christ and looking to him in repentance and faith and leave here with the assurance of knowing that you are indeed a member of the house of God. But secondly, those of us, for, for those of us who have considered and believed in Jesus for our salvation, here's our point of application. Who or what are you putting above Jesus in your life? Who or what are you making better than Jesus, more superior to Jesus in your life? This is a call. This text is a call for self-examination. John Calvin, the 16th century reformer, once said that a man's heart is an idol factory. What he meant by that is we are really, really good at making idols out of anyone and anything. You know, we tend to think of idols as being little gold or bronze or wooden statues that you might see in like Indiana Jones movies or those, you know, Statues of Buddha that you might see in some of the like hipster bookstores and things like that. That's what we think of when we think of the word idol. But in the Bible, an idol 
is anything or anyone that we put above God, that we make more important than Jesus. And brothers and sisters, we are all guilty of this. So here's a wonderful opportunity for us to consider who or what have I made more important than Jesus? Because the reality is anything that we put above Christ becomes something that can ultimately, if we do not repent, tear us away from Christ. It can become something that leads us to forget how grand Jesus is. It can lead us to a point where we no longer are considering Jesus. You know, the thing about idolatry is it's often good things, good gifts from God that we idolize. Just like these early early Jewish believers were in danger of idolizing Moses, replacing Jesus with Moses. Moses is honored in this passage. He's seen as a good and faithful servant. He was certainly a gift from God to God's people. But if you put even a good thing above Christ, it becomes an idol. When you worship the gift rather than the giver, you are creating an idol in your life. So what good things are you in danger of putting above Jesus Christ? Maybe it's your family. Certainly a good gift from God. But are you valuing the house more than the builder? Maybe it's your pastor, although I promise I will make it very, very hard for you to idolize me. <laughs> but, but so many people do idolize their pastors, right? Maybe it's your church. Maybe it's your job, your, your, your uh, relationship status. Maybe it's your grades or your sports teams, or your money, or your status in the community. All of these things are not evil in and of themselves. All of these things can be a wonderful blessing, a good gift from God to us. Gifts for us to enjoy. Gifts for us to use as faithful stewards for the, for the kingdom of God. But all of these things, and more, we can make idols because we can put them at a level in our life where they are functionally better than Jesus. And they can become, despite being good things, they can become dangers to our souls. So I want to encourage you to take this opportunity to examine your hearts and ask yourselves, who or what have I made better than Jesus in my life? And turn to God in repentance and ask him to show you your idols so that you can reorder your life. St. Augustine said that at the heart of idolatry is a misordering of love. What did he mean by that? Simply, it means that idolatry at the heart is giving more love to people and things than you give to Jesus Christ. So pray, pray to God, ask him to show you your idols Ask him to help you reorder your love so that you can make Christ the number one object of your affections, of your worship, of your praise, the number one object of peace and hope and security in your life. Because brothers and sisters, what the author of Hebrews 
here says is true. Jesus is truly better than anything else in the created world.